Good morning, church family. Good morning. And can we give one more round of applause for our new church family members as well? Welcome to the fam. Welcome to the family. I mean, I know we're all part of the family of God, but we want to say welcome to the family of the brook. Man, good morning, good morning. Oh, man, what a, what a treat and delight it is to stand with you this morning and to preach from God's word. Uh, can we, again, just uh, show our appreciation for our leadership here at the brook? And thank you for your countless hours of, of prayer and even meeting us uh, in our own lives and counseling and walking with us. So thank you for your leadership and wisdom in that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to stand here and uh, to be entrusted with this task of, of preaching and teaching. It's a lot of fun, actually, for me. Uh, I know public speaking intimidates a lot of people, uh, but for me, it, it is fun. I know you're looking at me like, how can this guy have fun up here? <laughs> this is actually the easy part, getting up here and speaking. The hard work really, as Pastor Eric did mention, comes uh, during the week when we are wrestling with, uh, with God's word, really trying to understand the meaning of the text and to put words together to present before you. Uh, but I will admit that even no matter how many hours we spend in uh, preparing Sometimes words can feel inadequate and fall short uh, and even misunderstood. Um, so this morning, I do want to ask that as I'm preaching here, uh, that you would also be praying for me that the Holy Spirit would do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. We're in the book of Judges. We're in this series. Um, and so I've been given the fun task of preaching on this next story. <laughs> When, when, when Pastor Eric first uh, approached me about preaching, uh, he did give me a couple, a couple passages, and it seems to be this ongoing theme that he likes to, you know, kind of keep me on, on my toes and give me all these hard passages. So he emailed me uh, the day before, the day afterwards, I came into the church, and I was like, what did I do this time to deserve this passage? You know, you could have given me some easier ones. Maybe I could have preached Gideon or, or somebody else, but... No, I get left with this passage. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, would you uh, turn to Judges, actually chapter 8. We'll start off with the, the last couple of verses of chapter 8. Um, and I haven't said this in a while, but if you don't have a Bible and this is your first time, you can find a blue Bible in front of you, and you can take that home with you. Consider that a gift from us to you. Uh, we hope that you could take it home and that you would... Use this as your own personal Bible and that God would meet you in your word. If you have a blue Bible and you're looking for where Judges is, it is on page 208. It's been a long time since I've said that, so it feels pretty good to say that. It feels really cool to say it. And if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? So again, sometimes these words are uplifting, you know, God's word does encourage us and spur us up in our faith, but there's other times where just like a, a bitter pill or hard medicine to swallow, it's good for our souls, but it's hard to take in. So today I'm going to read starting in verse 29 of Judges chapter 8, just to set the stage and the tone for our time this morning. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. We learned last week, Abimelech means my father is king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died... The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This morning, I want to borrow the title of my sermon from a 
a podcast that's been popular. I want to title this, The Rise and Fall of Abimelech. Uh, would, you, would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gathering of your people. The opportunity that we have to come to sing and declare the glories and the majesty of who you are. And I thank you, God, for the encouragement that we are to one another, the family of God. God, you know each and every one of us. You know our stories. You know our names. You know our testimony. And I thank you, Lord God, that we are able to mutually encourage one another and testify to what you have done in our lives. And so this morning, God, I come before you now as a broken vessel, as a jar of clay, trembling, God, because I know, Lord, that my, my words are not sufficient to capture all that you are and to communicate what you have for us. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that at this time that you would open our hearts, open our ears to receive what you have for us today. I pray that your people would not hear my words, but the words of a timeless and perfect God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that your word will do what it does best, which is to pierce our hearts, to convict us, but also to encourage us, to remind us of the hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I come bring this offering before you, and I ask, Lord, that it would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So until the terror attacks of September 11th, 2001, the Jamestown massacre was the largest loss of American citizens in a single incident. A man by the name of Jim Jones, seen as an influential individual with the charismatic personality, rose to prominence with an appetite for power. Forming a religious community called People's Temple, in the face of corruption and conflict, Jones had managed to convince his 900-plus cult followers of parents and children to participate in a revolutionary suicide by drinking a cocktail of cyanide, Valium, and Kool-Aid, from which the popular term is coined, drinking the Kool-Aid. And while we have the privilege of peering in the past with the perspective of pity, the sad reality is that American Christianity and many churches today has taken a sip from the same Kool-Aid of corruption. In June of 2021, Christianity Today released a very sobering podcast that tells the dramatic story of the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. That at its zenith, under the leadership of then, park, of then pastor Mark Driscoll, the church would grow from a church plant into one of the largest and most powerful churches in its time, influencing pastors, leaders, and followers in their faith. And yet, with each episode uncovering the harrowing truth of what happened behind closed doors that led to its sudden implosion and demise we have sorrowfully come to realize that more and more churches and its influential leaders are also following under the same trap. A charismatic leader paired with unchecked corruption, abuse, and hunger for fame and power. The book of Judges records the history of a nation, the nation of Israel, recounting its rise and fall, its rise and fall, its rise and fall. And thus far in our series, we have witnessed the wonders of God's ability to save and liberate the nation of Israel by raising up judges or deliverers. How God certainly uses a variety of people with different backgrounds, men and women, people of great courage, but also with deep, insecure qualities to miraculously use them in magnificent ways that only he can. And at the same time, what is highlighted is the plague of corruption and rebellion that pervades in the hearts and the lives of the Israelites. The retelling of these encounters with each of these individuals and the nation of Israel is meant to alert and to warn listeners and readers that we are not too far removed from being caught in the same pattern. But what happens when God doesn't raise up a judge? What happens when God doesn't send a deliverer? 
That's the question that confronts us in our text this morning of Judges chapter 9, looking into the life of a man by the name of Abimelech and the people of Shechem. We were introduced to Abimelech that he is the son of Jerubal, or better known as Gideon. And what we learn in this story in chapter 9 is that Abimelech goes to his, his family's people in the city of Shechem, and he says, make me your king. Essentially, he frames it in a question and says, I want the throne, I want to be king. And rather than ruling with justice and righteousness, he brings nothing but calamity and destruction. And you would think that God would raise up a leader, raise up a judge, raise up a deliverer, a savior to save these people from destruction. But no, more injustice ensues. More corruption takes place. More violence is enacted. And in fact, at the end of the story, we're left just to sit in the dust and ashes of violence. The only thing that seems to be present in this story is corruption, and corruption that is rooted in power. You see, because positions of authority, money, and influence will not solve, nor will they ever satisfy the sickness of evil and wickedness. The only antidote to what is evil is God. The only solution to sin is Jesus. And the only answer to the longings of our heart is God. Yet in this story, there seems to be none of that. And as I wrestled and toiled with this text, I do believe that this is the intent and the thrust of this chapter. This is the lesson that ought to be learned. This text warns us that when righteousness and justice are absent, unchecked corruption freely abounds. Let me actually borrow language from the book of Judges. When people don't remain loyal and are disobedient to God, they do what is right in their own sight and begin worshiping idols and whoring after other gods. Here in Judges chapter 9, presented before us is this devastating and dangerous evidence of unchecked corruption. What we see here at the end of chapter 8, verses 33 and following, is that corruption becomes hereditary, meaning that it's passed on from generation to generation. I know many of you might have forgotten what that word means because it's been a long time since you've been in biology class. But sin is passed on from generation to generation. You see, with over 12,000 different species around the world, ants are small, tiny, minute creatures that can teach us some big, large, and significant life lessons. Twice, actually, it says in the book of Proverbs, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide food in the summer. Made up of soldiers, workers, drones, and queen ants, all these different types of ants form colonies called fornicaries. While most ants don't have ears or eyes, they actually follow the vibrations felt from the ground that help them to hear. But another way that they track direction and messages are through chemical signals called pheromones. And these pheromones help leave a trail to food sources, but also warns of potential danger and threat in the nearby vicinity. Now, soldier army ants are in particular very blind, and they, have, they heavily rely on pheromone trails that are left behind. And yet a bizarre phenomenon occurs, especially when army ants lose their scent in a phenomenon called an ant's mill, or also known as a death spiral. This occurs when one ant all of a sudden loses its scent and veers off looking to relocate the scent. And upon rediscovering a scent, the ant does not realize they are now literally marching around in circles. And according to Time Magazine, a scientist by the name of W.M. Wheeler, who first wrote about this in 1910, makes this observation. He says, for nearly two whole days... These blind creatures, so dependent on the contact odor, sense of their antenna, kept palpating their uniformly smooth odoriferous trail and the advancing bodies of the ants immediately preceding them without perceiving that they were making no progress but only, immediate, but only wasting their energies. See, some of these cycles would eventually break apart as ants would swerve out creating new pathways but other cycles would continue on, and that would slowly exhaust ants out, leading to their impending death. These ants were caught in a cycle 
that led to their own death. But that's the way that sin operates. It deters us, it detracts us, and it deflects us off the path of God just enough to keep us walking around wandering in circles. I mean, the Israelites were found wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. And the story of Abimelech actually begins at the end of chapter 8, where we are told again that Israel was stuck in this same vicious cycle of running away and returning to God. This cycle goes something like this, where Israel does what is right in their own eyes and turns away from God. God brings judgment. The Israelites cry out. God raises a judge to deliver them from the oppression. And the people then again forget what God did to deliver them. And they go back to worshiping other gods and idols and doing what is right in their own sight. And highlighted throughout the book of Judges is the repetition of this phrase. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. Here in these last few verses, Israel is yet again lingering in this destructive pattern. The nation of Israel practiced evil, exercised wickedness, enacted injustice, all acts that was displeasing and disgusting in the eyes of God. But they also sought after in worship and devotion other gods and other idols. Their hearts were given over not to God. And the book of Judges actually suggests to us not only does God detest disobedience and disloyalty to him, but God despises when people practice wickedness and injustice. There is no separation between worship and works, doctrine and deed, profession and practice. These passages demonstrate to us that when people turn away from obedience and fidelity to God, acts of evil and wickedness follow closely after. And what seems to be the missing link that leads to faithfulness to God is remembering. If forgetfulness results in disobedience to God, then remembering should result in obedience to God. But I would be too careful to quickly judge Israel on the basis of faithfulness because if we're honest with ourselves, we too are just like Israel. How easy is it for us to set up our own idols and to do what we think is right in our own eyes? How effortless is it to prop up our own work, our significant others and our children and our leaders in the place where God is to reign supreme? But even more so, how quickly we seem to forget the times that God in his abundant grace and kindness delivered us out of our own afflictions, from all of our trials, from all of our difficult circumstances. We are fast to forget the wonderful works of God here today and gone tomorrow, gone before tomorrow arrives. And so we ought to be attentive to sin and its effect in our lives because what we fail to realize is that sin can be passed down. Abimelech is only a product of what he received as an inheritance from his father Gideon. And Gideon a product of what he received from the generation before him and so forth. And that's what appears to be evidenced in this text, in chapter 8. The repetition of this cycle is passed down from generation to generation. And you would think that the nation of Israel would have learned by now at least to put an end to this cycle of death. But the reality is, is that the situation gets worse and worse. Corruption abounds more and more, and destruction is knocking at Israel's door. So I pause here to say that if we are not careful to confront that we too can pass down generational cycles of sin, these cycles of sin do not merely affect us as individuals, but they also shape our lived realities and also the lived realities that our children inherit. The corruption we are dealing with now and living with in our own world today are those in which we inherited from the generation before us and the generation before them and the generations before them. But if we are not mindful of what is dealt with now, then our children and our children's children have to live with what we did not attend to here. And so before I actually pass on from this point as well, I do want to make this plug that I don't think sin is the only thing that can be passed down. 
I do believe that trauma and mental health also are just as prone to being passed down and passed along when it's not confronted. It's because research actually shows compelling evidence that trauma heavily impacts intergenerationally. Mental health and trauma needs to be confronted as much as sin needs to be confronted to prevent from being passed down. So we discover here that corruption becomes hereditary, passed down from generation to generation. But corruption also empowers and endorses violence. Read with me here in Judges chapter 1, or Judges chapter 9, excuse me. I'm going to jump around a little bit here in these verses. I'm going to start in verse 6, where it says, And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. I wanted to start here because I find it a little bit ironic. So when, when reading this chapter, details are important. I know some of you might be hearing these things and what is so important about this oak, what is so important about Shechem. Well, if you turn to Joshua chapter 24, at the end of Joshua's life, before he is on his deathbed, he renews the covenant of God with the nation of Israel at Shechem. And it is to believe that at this tree where Abimelech is made king, Joshua makes this plea. It says in verse 1 of chapter 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Skipping to verse 14, it says, Now therefore, Joshua saying this, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua anticipating their answer he says this, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is holy. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. But the people insisted and said this, no, but we will serve the Lord. And then it says this in verse 22, then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. It's ironic because here Abimelech is being assumed as king, a place where God is supposed to reign supreme as king. On the very spot where the nation of Israel recommitted their lives to the Lord, they're saying, we are forgetting God and we are bowing our knees to Abimelech. So as we jump around in this, in this chapter, I want to begin in verse 1. How did Abimelech get to this position? How did we get here? It says, now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his father's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his father's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and I am your bone and your flesh. And then in verse 3, it says, and his father's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf. In the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers and the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he had hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, we're not told explicitly Abimelech's motives for his desire for kingship, but what unfolds in the following events cautions us to discern, especially those who we desire to put in places of leadership. 
Abimelech makes this petition that sounds good to the ears of the leaders of Shechem. Because let's be honest, who wouldn't want to have someone in power who will have their best interest in mind? Especially if this someone is somebody who's related to them, somebody who is their kin, somebody who's family. I mean, imagine all the perks and all the privileges and all the access that comes with of having somebody in your family in a position of power. So their hearts are inclined to make Abimelech king. But they also endorse his campaign to be a king for all the Shechemites. Perhaps to make Shechem great again. <laughs> and it says that they take the money out of the house of Baal Barith and gave it to Abimelech. Baal Barith, the house of Baal Barith. That was the place of worship. They took money from the temple and handed it over to Abimelech. And in return, he takes the money and reaps more corruption. Money that was dedicated to worship. It might not be the true and living God, but it was still dedicated for worship. And as it says, he hired worthless and reckless fellows. I believe that this description was given to illustrate that Abimelech and his followers do, would do whatever it takes to seize and to keep their position of power. What did they do? They go and commit mass murder, killing 70 of Abimelech's brothers. This heinous act of violence that was endorsed by the government, the leaders of Shechem, and the religious institution of that time in Shechem, the house of Baal Barith. We, we are here this Sunday off the heels of last week as a church where we spent time lamenting, grieving, and interceding for the victims of a mass shooting that took place in Uvalde, Texas, where an 18-year-old was in the possession of an assault rifle, entered into an elementary school, and took with him 21 lives. Yet not many days after, another mass shooting occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a man entered a hospital with an assault rifle and robbed the lives of four victims. And since 2013, there have been 238 mass shootings that have taken place here in the United States. When will we get to a point as a nation where enough is enough? How many more innocent children need to be robbed of life? How many more people need to be sacrificed on the altar of the Second Amendment? When will the United States come to realize that it is more pro-gun than it is pro-life? John D. Rockefeller was once asked this, how much money is enough money? To which he replied, just a little bit more. And I want to borrow his words from that exchange and ask the United States, how many more mass shootings need to take place and how many more innocent lives need to be taken by gun violence until the nation decides to take action? And I'm afraid that the haunting response is just one more. Corruption also solicits. Corruption here in the United States solicits black and brown votes only to lie and take back promised words. Corruption promises to take in refugees, but doubles and even triples the numbers of families locked up in unlivable situations at the southern border. Corruption gives lip service to justice to get a, 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 a seat in the White House. Surely the church would take a different stance. Surely the church would take up the call to be the voice for the voiceless. Surely the church would stand in the gap for those who lost their lives. But unfortunately, what we've come to realize is that the church is just as complicit as its corrupt politicians. That sometimes it's the church who endorses the corruption. It's the church that has taken its money from the offering plate and placed it into the pocket of corrupt politicians. And how can it be that the churches are no longer safe places of worship, safe havens where victims of abuse can find refuge? 
Just recently, an article was published at the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the largest, most prominent denominations in the United States remains silenced and active to keep hidden the names of pastors and leaders who were caught in sexual, emotional, and spiritual abuse of situations. Our children care about matters of justice. I see it in social media. I see it everywhere. They care about matters of justice. It's not because it's a matter of policy, because it's a matter of righteousness. I see them rallying and walking out of classrooms because they are tired. They are asking the same question that the world is asking today. Where is the church? The world has its eyes on the church who is called to bear witness to the truth of who God is and to enact what is good and what is right in God's sight. But it seems like the church has failed in its call and mission of being ambassadors and representatives of God's love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here is the sad and sobering truth that when the church in the United States should have taken a stand against gun violence, when the church in the United States should have taken a stand in the face of abuse, when the church in the United States should have taken a stand against injustice, she was found to be complicit with the crimes of the nation. What we don't need are Christian laws to be passed to keep the nation from sinning. The Israelites had God's laws written in stone, directly given from the mouth of God, and they still did not stop them from executing mass murder. What we need are faithful believers who will stand for justice, who will stand for righteousness. We need faithful believers who will protect all life from the womb to the tomb, the indigenous born to the ignorant, from those of all socioeconomic backgrounds and status. What we see in this text is this pervasive evidence of corruption. And lastly, sadly, what we see is that corruption divides and reaps destruction. If you skip down with me here in verse 22, it says, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And it says in verse 23, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jubal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who killed them, and on the men... Who, who, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened the hands to kill his brothers, and the leaders of Shechem who put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. You see, corruption, what, what happens here is that the people come against the person that they made their leader. And so the nation is divided. Ruler against people, people against ruler. And you would think that one would overcome the other, but no, what, the way that this story ends is that both come to their demise. And what we see here in this passage is that corruption divides people across political lines, but corruption also divides across family lines. See, Abimelech was their family. He was their kin. But even so, they came against him. Now, I do want to say this, that corruption, even though it might be prevalent and pervasive, it leaves us wondering where God is in the midst of all this. And before I get there, I do want to briefly summarize, just let you know what happens at the rest of this story. We take a brief pause in the life of Abimelech. This happens in his life, but the shift focuses to this new character by the name of Gaul. Now, he is also a Shechemite, and he comes into the scene, and he also wins the affection of the people. And so you would think that the presentation of this new character is someone who would stand up, arise, and triumph over the wickedness of Abimelech. But no, he actually suffers at the hands of Abimelech, suffers the very fate. Here we read that he tries to conspire he tries to stir up the people to rebel against Abimelech. And there's a word there 
I know it's not, it might not be related here to the message, but you ought to be careful what you say around who you say it to. Because what happens here is they throw this big festival. They gather the grapes. They get drunk. They get, they, they, they throw a big rager. And at this party, they have a roast fest of Abimelech. And in verse 28, it says, Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal, meant to be an insult? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this place be under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard these words, his anger was kindled. Be careful what you say around who you say it to. And so it says, he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives came to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who you are with, and set an ambush in the field. Then, in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise up early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with you come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So the Abimelech takes this advice and he camps on the mountaintop. The next morning we read, it says, Gaul woke up and he sees that the, the, the men from the mountain are coming down. And so he calls for Zebul and he says, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. Remember, he, he insulted Zebul the night before. And so Zebul says, oh no, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men's. But Gaul spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are, you, are not these people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. It says in 39, and Gaul went out to the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him. And he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that, so that they could not dwell at Shechem. They basically chased them out of town. But the story gets worse. Other people suffer at the hand of Abimelech. It says, the following day, the people went out into the field, innocent People woke up to go to work the next day, and Abimelech was told, and he took his people and divided them in three companies and set an ambush in the fields. He looked and saw the people coming out the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Corruption does not discriminate. Corruption does whatever it wants and takes with it whoever it can't. We see not only that he takes the life of these innocent people, but he ravages the city. It says in verse 45, and Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. It's an interesting description there, sowing the city with salt. It's to ensure that this city would never be able to rise again, that it would remember its rebellion and its failure. He basically left it desolate and lifeless because that's what destruction and corruption does. But yet, we see here that in the presence of destruction is the presence of divinity. That God is active even in the face of injustice. Remember earlier in that section it says, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Now, what we didn't read at this point is what Abimelech's younger brother, Jotham, said. So you go back to verse 7. Right after Abimelech is made king, it says this. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim 
and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And then in verse 16, Jotham says these words of warning. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and you have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech king, the son of his female servant. If you, verse 19, have then acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come down. From Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So, what God does there is He repays the injustice that was done to Abimelech's brothers. What we read here in the story towards the end of this chapter is that we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up in, in verse 50. And it says, then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So the way that Abimelech was trying to wipe out the city, wipe out the people, was to burn it with fire. But then it says here in verse 53, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, yes, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. If you remember in Pastor Eric's earlier sermons, dying at the hands of a woman was a very shameful and dishonorable death. But yet here, what we find recorded is that Abimelech indeed does die a shameful and dishonorable death. And so we pick up in verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. You see, throughout this whole story, God is only mentioned nothing but three times. Three times God is mentioned. So by the end of reading the story, we might come to ask this question, where is God in all of this? Why didn't he step in? Why did he not stop the violence from happening? This is the lifelong question of theodicy, of why would a good God allow so much evil in the world to take place? Now, I'll admit that my words are inadequate to give you a satisfactory answer, but what I can tell you is just that this is just a small story in a greater story, a greater story that is even more sorrowful and evil, but resolves with redemptive hope. God is present in in this story as much as he is still present in this day and age. That even in the midst of all the turmoil and evil that abounds, God is evermore present. See, in this passage here, we see that it was God who sent an evil spirit between Abimelech. Not because he likes to send wickedness, but so that that when we read the story, we know that God cares about 
justice. God cares about righteousness. And I remember taking this flight to California one day, and it was cloudy and gloomy, and it was, it was rain in the sky. And I wondered where the sun was that day. I wondered where the sun was. And upon its ascent, as we made our way above the clouds, there the sun was, and it dawned on me that the sun was above the rain clouds, that no matter what happens, no matter what storms come, the sun is consistently there and reliable. This is the same God who is there and meets you in your own trials. And sometimes we might not be able to see God, but we can feel God. And I like the way that the late E.K. Bailey actually says this in one of his most famous sermons. You ought to trust God's heart when you can't trace his hand. That God might be seemingly absent, but he is ever more present. Because God cares about justice. God cares about righteousness. And you ask me how I know in this story that God cares especially about justice. Well, I couldn't help but hear the overtones of what we are anticipating for. See, because the people, they longed for a king. They longed for a ruler. They wanted somebody to rule over their lives. They wanted to make somebody king. And there was somebody to make king. See, where, where, where Jotham made this prophecy on Mount Gerizim was the exact mountain just before Moses died where he would prophesy saying, there shall come forth from you a prophet like me who would arise from his brothers. Yeah. It was Isaiah who said, there shall be a, uh, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root that shall bear fruit. And after judges and kings, God would send prophet after prophet to try and bring Israel back. But time and time again, they would fail to redeem Israel. But God would be silent for 400 years. But then in Matthew chapter 1, God would speak audibly and loudly and clearly his heart and his desire to redeem. Because he was born out of obscurity. He was not born out of nobility. He came of humble estate. He also came to his brothers not to seek a throne, but to tell them about the kingdom that has yet to come. He surrounded himself with a ragtag team of misfits, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and was found spending more time with the outcasts of society than the elites that he was given the nickname of friend and sinners. And on the day that he died, he was asked the question, where is, are you truly a king? And to his response, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. This king would wear a crown of thorn on his head, would carry his cross and make his way up the Via de la Rosa. And he would be up on a rock, on the rock of Calvary. And there he would be anointed as king. The irony in his death is that he was being exalted as king. King, people were mocking him, saying, if you truly are the son of God, if you truly are the king of kings, come down from there. But really, they were, ad they were adoring him with praise, saying, truly, Jesus, you are the son of God. Truly, you are the king of kings. Jeremiah called him the bomb in Gilead. Isaiah said it this way, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, that those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them was light shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil, for the yoke of his burden is easy, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the file fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace and of his increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
family, there is a hope. There is a hope. There is an answer to all the corruption that we face in this world. Jesus Christ said it himself. In this world, you have many troubles. But take heart. For I have overcome the world. So I want to invite us this morning, as we close our time just singing in song, some of you might be in that place of disparity. You, we see so much corruption around us. We see so much loss, so much pain. How can there be hope? Is there a bomb in Gilead? I want to present to you that Jesus is that hope. Jesus is that hope. He has overcome. He has overcome. You ask me how I know? They tried to kill him. They tried to crucify him. They put nails in his hands and they put nails in his feet. They ensured that he was dead by placing a spear in his side. And he hung and died on that Friday night. And they buried him thinking that he was dead. They rolled a stone over that tomb and sealed it. Surely he is dead. But on Sunday morning, he got up. He got up. He got up. He overcame. And because he overcame the grave, we too can overcome. We too can overcome. We can overcome the, the, the trials in our lives. We can overcome the corruption that pervades our communities. There is triumph in Jesus. Father, we come to you, Lord, on this morning, longing for the true king. Our world longs for the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords. And I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us with these words, that we would take heart no matter how big or how small our troubles might be, that we would take heart that you have overcome. And I pray, Lord God, especially for those in this room and those who might be tuning in online, who have been living without hope, who have been searching for answers, God, that you, you would draw them near to the one who is the answer. You would draw them near to the one who is their hope, to the one who is Jesus, that you would cover them with your love. God, we talked a little bit about those who experience abuse. We talked a little bit about those who have experienced loss. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would come and bring comfort to them, that you would draw near to the brokenhearted. God, that you would meet them, that you would bring healing, for their sorrows, you would bring healing for their pain, that you would be their shelter, Lord. God, that they would know that there is, there is healing. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, as we close this time in song, that you, King Jesus, would be lifted high. God, that we would surrender every area of our lives where you are not made king, no matter what it might be, over our kids, over our marriages, over our work over our sin, we ask, King Jesus, that you would resume the throne and that we would submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.